this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Greetings from Tahiti, from Linus and Daly. So I said on last episode that I didn't think Daly was going to make it, but he did. He did get a preliminary permit, and he did fly, and he did get a permanent permit to stay with me for the two months or so that I'm going to be in Tahiti. And when I look back at the crew members with the most sea miles besides myself on the slow boat, it's Daily R Toy Poodle. First, here's a word from our sponsor. Why does the Mantis anchor set quick and others don't? Um, well, we have all, a lot of the weight of the anchor directed right onto the nose. Uh, so like a sharp, sharp knife, throw it in the hard pack sediment, you'll stick. So that's what we did. We gave it a sharp blade and a lot of weight on the tip. Philip Cutson and his brother Greg and Deneen Taylor from Mantis Anchors will be our episode 35 guests and they have a lot of great sailing stories and a lot of great products that we use on the slow boat. So I'm going to make this talk short because the fan makes too much noise and I am currently in a room that has no screens and I would rather sweat than get bitten by mosquitoes. But I would rather do neither one of those things and so I'd like to start running the fan here in my hot hotel room in Tahiti. Unfortunately, I've spent more time in Tahiti hotels than I have wanted to because there has been a strike of firefighters who, I guess, work at the airfields in the outlying islands in French Polynesia. And that has shut down all flights. And though the flight to Hiva Oa is pretty much a daily flight, I think it flies like six times a week. They have been, it has been shut down for almost a week. But thankfully, uh, one day has been resumed. And I did get on that flight with Daly. And so we will be going back to the slow boat, fingers crossed, tomorrow. You know, I think uh, France and its territories are a little bit more tolerant of kind of really aggressive strikes that harm people that are very unrelated to the issues involved. So 3,000 people have been stranded by this uh, strike of a few dozen firefighters from what I have read uh, in Tahiti and while this may be a boon to hoteliers here in Tahiti it certainly is hurting a lot of people in the outlying islands unfairly uh, just because uh, a few people would like I don't know I suspect higher wages their demands from what I have read, have not been uh, published, but I assume they want more money, but we don't know, and perhaps they should communicate that better. But I just think it's just grossly unfair. Someone, you know, I personally didn't even know that you had to have firefighters to run an airport, but 
you know, I guess you have to have firefighters, you need to have police officers, you need to have air traffic controllers, you need to have baggage handlers, you need to have all these things. And any one of these groups could supposedly strike and shut down all the airports. I can't remember that happening in my lifetime in the United States uh, since the 1980s when there was the air traffic controller strike. And that ended in a lot of air traffic controllers losing their jobs. Uh, but I think the legal uh, remedies may be different here in France, and maybe the public attitudes may be different. And so uh, very aggressive strikes that hurt a lot of people unrelated to how firefighters are paid, you know, can take place. Me, I'd personally like to get back to my boat and spend a lot of money that would benefit the outlying islands of the Marquesas, not just the fire, the handful of firefighters that are there. You know, I wonder if you could count the number of firefighters involved in this strike in Hiva. Oh, on one hand, I kind of doubt you could count more than five. Uh, but I think a lot more than five people on Hiva O are affected by that. But it's all part of the journey, you know, I mean, that is travel. You know, everybody knows with a sailboat that you don't always get to go on time. And, you know, the one thing that I have learned about the round the world voyage is that the government and human obstacles are often larger than the obstacles that Neptune and the sea may throw at you. And so this is another one of the obstacles that you face, uh, public sector disruptions uh, when you're traveling to different countries. So I would like to get sailing and I'm confident we will get to start doing that very soon. I'm also eager to get back to our boat, which does have screens, so we can get some breeze without letting in the uh, mosquitoes, and I'm pretty happy about that. They've actually had an outbreak of dengue fever here in Tahiti, and so not only do you have the inconvenience of bites, but you have a small risk every time you get bit that you may get a disease that has no vaccine. So having been an unwilling dirt dweller in the tropics here, I have come to appreciate how much nicer it is, at least in terms of the temperatures, to be on the water. And I'm on the leeward side of the island, so we don't get a ton of breeze anyways, but if you don't have screens, you don't get breeze, unless you're willing to take the bugs. And there are typically a lot fewer bugs on the water, even if you don't have screens. Alright, so I'm really pleased to have Sailing Doodles as a guest. Bobby from Sailing Doodles has a very compelling story, I think, that has caught people's imagination. Much like Tyler Brandt that we interviewed, who completed his circumnavigation recently. You know, he has come to sailing with almost no sailing experience, just bought a boat and went. And through his gumption, 
he got to the Virgin Islands. He and his friend are thinking of selling. It's, it is Bobby's boat, but he does, he has joined his crew with his friend and his two Labradoodles, very big dogs. And they have sailed quite a far away from, all the way from Galveston, Texas, to the Virgin Islands. And I think they are looking to upgrade their boat, and their boat right now is actually for sale. And Bobby White on the Sailing Doodles YouTube channel does really an excellent live feed that is very well attended. And he's convinced me even to try some live feeds on YouTube. And in those I've been watching, I think he was talking about uh, maybe a deal that he got to maybe rent a, a larger boat and he would like to rent a larger boat, I think in the Mediterranean. But since I've been traveling, I haven't had the bandwidth to uh, follow along. But he's got a great YouTube channel and you should definitely check it out. Here's the interview with Bobby White of Sailing Doodles. Okay, so why don't you tell me your name and the name of your boat? Okay, my name is uh, Bobby White. The name of the boat is uh, Rough Seas, and we are pretty much the uh, Sailing Doodles. Where did you sail the boat out of? Left out of uh, Galveston Bay, specifically Kima, which is uh, real close to Houston, Texas. Did you sail offshore to get to Florida, or what? Basically, we kind of planned on, uh, it was really our first shakedown sail, too. Uh, you know, it, it takes a good four or five hours or longer just to get out of Galveston Bay. And then you're you're hugging the coast for another 40, 50 miles till you get away from it. So we went nonstop from Kima all the way. Our first land up to that was in the Dry Tortugas, which is uh, just actually west of the Florida Keys. Wow, that's crazy. Seven, seven days across. Is it? Did you have a favorable wind? Yeah, that's part of the reason we did it. So at that time, instead of kind of delaying and taking our time, is that the first three days we actually had a north wind and it wasn't too strong. So we were kind of going with the wind and uh, with the waves. It was kind of nice. And it was also a full moon at night. So it made sailing pretty easy. And especially those first couple, two or three days crossing the Gulf, there are thousands of oil wells and, uh, you know, tankers and all that out there. So it's a bit hazardous at night. Um, you know, so it, having that full moon really helps. Wow. Okay. I, I didn't realize you had to dodge all those oil tankers. Oh, yeah. It's out there in the middle of the Gulf, and it's very annoying the way they have them on the charts. You know, they'll put, you know, oil well removed, but there'll still be pipes sticking out with just very, very, very little light on them. And they'll have like a, a little sign, tiny light and then a siren that goes around. But, you know, it's kind of eerie at night. Oh, see, that's what I like about offshore sailing. You kind of don't have to worry too much about hitting anything yeah <laughs> but it doesn't sound like that for much of the gulf of mexico crossing you did no the gulf of mexico is not like that at all once you get out you know about four or five days in that the oil wells were extremely far apart because you're in pretty deep water at that point i've never gone offshore in the gulf of mexico except like off the florida coast so I guess I've never run into that. When you come out of New Orleans, it's my home port, you do see wells. Right. But I always hugged the coast till I got to Florida. And then when I went offshore 
from the panhandle, you know, I don't think they have oil wells off of Florida. Yeah, I don't think so. And, and it's a lot prettier water over at that side, too. And then coming out of Galveston, the water is just really kind of dirty brown because of the Mississippi. Once you get east of the Mississippi, it's, it's a lot clearer. The other thing that struck me this last summer when we, we were trying to, I was open to the idea of leaving offshore New Orleans, but I couldn't get a good wind. The yeah. wind was all east, so I was surprised that you were able to do that in one hop, or did you tack a lot? You know, we didn't tack a whole lot. Toward the end, we did. Uh, we had a favorable wind. It was just, you know, a, a very weak, cold front came through, and so we followed that most of the way, came with that most of the way. Toward the end, we did have to do a little bit of tacking because, you know, the wind is... We actually motored quite a bit, too, towards the end. And, you know, on a motor, I've only got a 30 horsepower motor, and so we're only doing four and a half, five knots, which made it a lot longer of a trip there towards the end. We were, we were planning on five to six days, and it ended up being seven, so it seems okay for the distance you did yeah and also the wind direction or what is the type of boat that rough seas is it's a 1984 37 foot cnc it's actually 37 and a half it's more of a design more for racing cruising it's not real beamy it's, it's only up it's under 11 feet wide and it, it's a fast boat but i've discovered over the past four and a, four or five months it's not exactly uh, especially not for the bahamas it's got a deep draft foot draft that it's uh, not ideal for the Bahamas. Oh, okay, I didn't realize. Yeah, that, that'd be a bummer. Yeah, but, it was kind of limiting on where we could go there. We're not in the Bahamas anymore. The boat's down in, I just came home to visit family for two weeks, and I'm going back to the boat in a, in a week. The boat is currently in Puerto Rico, and we've already been to the Virgin Islands. I just left it in Puerto Rico because it's a little cheaper to leave it there. I think I, I was, saw your latest video, and you said you were headed to Culebra or something uh, like that. We did the Spanish Virgins. We, we did uh, just a couple days in Culebra and the Spanish Virgins. Then we went over to St. Thomas and kind of went around there for a week and then went back to the Spanish Virgins to check out the Bio Bay and then left the, left the boat in uh, Puerto Rico. So that seems like it seems like kind of like prime charter territory there. Ever tempted to charter it or, or work in the charter business? Uh, that's my backup plan. It's a lot more expensive to do this than I thought. <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's kind of my backup plan is if I can't, if I run out of money or, or something like that, then uh, maybe try to either charter or just get a, I have a few friends that uh, are captains on some mega yachts based in, in the Virgin Islands. And I can get a job as a mate on that, you know, until I can get my captain's license. You know, because you have to have the, I don't know, I don't have enough, I don't have my captain's license yet, so I would need to do that. Yeah, I'm sure you're building up the sea time pretty quick, though. So when, yeah. did, when did you leave Galveston? November 13th. Okay. A little over four months ago now. And you owned the boat for years before that or not really not really i about a month before we left okay cool and the whole, the whole the way it happened is i was a professional pilot for my whole career i mean I, that's when i went to college and i had that brain bleed wasn't technically a stroke but very similar and uh, lost my ability to, lost my medical license to fly so uh you know, i didn't really know what else to do just bought the boat you had a medical issue which made it hard for you to uh continue flying i i feel i have 100 Legally, the FAA, after seeing my medical records from the, uh, the incident there, the brain bleed, they actually rescinded my medical certificate to make it impossible for me to fly. I tried, you know, doing some other things for a while. I, I sold real estate for about six months, and then I decided that wasn't for me. And I've always wanted to do this dream of going sailing. Often people that dream of going cruising and sailing someday, kind of their biggest fear, and my biggest fear was that you keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, and you never actually do it. So I, I figured now's the time, let's just go for it. 
Cool. So I bought the boat and uh, made it happen. Awesome. Well, that's that's great. You're not the first person I've talked to that just bought a boat and went. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah. It's really worked out for them that they've had awesome cruises, you know, all the stuff that uh, a lot of us prepare years and years for and some of us maybe never do. It can be done really quick. It can. It costs some money to do it, but, I mean, just... In my particular case, I mean, it's, it's not a whole lot of money. I bought the boat for 24000 I put six into it. I figure I'm spending about 2500 a month, living expenses and everything. It's really a lot. If you have 50 grand, they've got to go for a year. You know, to, and that's including buying the boat. Now, if you already have the boat, you don't need that much. What kind of planes did you fly before you retired? Uh, Gulf Streams, private jets mostly. That's, that's what I did is I worked for a, a wealthy family that had you know their own private jet. And around wherever they wanted to go. We went all over the world, so it was, I guess I was already pretty much a world traveler, and it was kind of hard being stuck in one place for six months after my medical incident. That travel lust had gotten me, I was ready to go. Cool. Well, you know, I've met a lot of pilots who are sailors. It seems to make sense to pilots. Yeah, although instead of going 600 miles an hour, you're going six miles an hour. It's, it's right. Good. Well, you got the, at least you got the lift there, I guess. But. Right, right. I guess they talk about the you know takeoff and landing or the critical periods. They are for, for a boat too, but I guess they're not as critical. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on where you're trying to dock the boat. You got to Dry Tortugas. I've never been to Dry Tortugas this summer. We just sailed straight past it. How was it? You know what? I, I, if, if you got a couple extra days, I'd say do it. Uh, Fort Jefferson, which is on, uh, I think it's Bush Key is the name of the key. Uh, really impressive. The fort there is amazing. There's a tourist ferry boat that comes over here every day, so you get a lot of tourists there. At night, when the tourist ferry goes home, you know, in the evenings, there's nobody there. It's really a cool place to check out. There's a lot of history there, too. Glad we stopped there. Cool. Yeah, we spent a lot of time in Key West, and I was looking into the, the ferry boat, and boy, that's expensive. It's like $300, $400 or something for that ferry, so if you got a sailboat, you might as well <laughs> go yeah. over there if you're in Key West. It was 60 miles across, 60 miles over there, you know, and uh, so you gotta wait for the good wind. You know, getting get to dry tortuga is not, not hard, but uh, getting back, you gotta, you gotta kind of plan your window out there. I guess I, that was kind of what I was a little worried about is I've heard people get kind of stuck trying to find a good window. Yeah, for sure, getting back. It doesn't sound like a place that you'd want to hang out for a ton of time. No, there's absolutely no services there. I mean, they have a little ranger station, they'll but there's no phone, no internet, no, you can't get water, you can't, you know, you can't drop trash, you can't get any fuel. So, oh, that's a bummer, uh, yeah. There's no service. It's kind of weird, on the charts where they say recommended anchorage, I would never anchor there, I don't know why they have that. There's a little bay where you can anchor next to their mooring balls, which are technically government-owned, but everybody anchors there anyway. There was two or three other boats when we were there. All right, cool. Yeah, I I don't know, I, I think all the charts, they, the recommended anchorages are bad. <laughs> they're like for ships or something I don't know I don't know what I they're thinking have to, way to go. I yeah alright so did you go up and down the Keys or where'd you go from there there went to Key West spent about a week Key West did some refitting on the boat you know I, after that seven days across and a couple days at uh, at uh, in the dry tortugas you kind of realize what else you need on the boat um, so we kind of did, you know, worked. I got a new anchor at that point uh, and a few other things there. Did that. Spent about a week there and then worked away. Uh, about took us about three days to work up the keys to Miami. Spent just a couple days there and then headed over to Bimini. All right, cool. Um, you didn't stop many places in the keys besides Key West or no place? Uh, well, just 
overnight anchorages. So I think we stopped in uh, Marathon, then we stopped Rodriguez Key, and then I think it was just two stops up to Miami. Okay. Picked up a mooring ball in Marathon, or did you no, just anchor? Just anchored right there. It's a little deep going into the channel there in Marathon, so we just anchored outside. It wasn't too bad, though. Yeah, I, I like Key West. I think that was my favorite place in the Keys, although a lot of people really like to spend a lot of time in Marathon. Yeah, I, yeah, I like Key West too. I mean, it, it's a fun city, and you can find a, a decent anchorage there, although we, the weather was pretty good. I don't know how it would be in, in, a, in, a, in a strong blow. Heck, that, but the pro, part of the problem with Key West is so expensive, you know, because it's a tourist town, and, um, you know, uh, you know if, if you, we spent a couple nights in the marina while I was yeah, I wouldn't use the South Florida marinas. They're really pricey, like three dollars a foot and stuff. Yeah. And the other thing is, if you're anchoring, then you have to pay for like the dinghy. You have to pay for the dinghy landing. Yeah. So that's an issue, but it's everything seemed on sale compared to the Bahamas to me. The Bahamas, <laughs> uh, you know what? It is. The Bahamas is some of the, the best cruising grounds as far as ease and 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 beauty, but. It's expensive. Yeah, it's, and it really attracts people that can spend the money too. So you, I'm sure where you've been since, you've seen a lot, a lot less expensive boats, a lot less disposable income cruiser, cruisers uh, as you went south. There was a lot of that in uh, Georgetown. Um, I think that's you know they call it Chicken Key for a reason, just because you know it's a lot harder to get south after that. But there was there was quite a few little boards that look like they've been in Georgetown a while. There's some of that in the Virgin Islands. Not, not, the Virgin Islands are much cheaper um, than the Bahamas. Cool. That's good to know. I was always shocked by the price of beer in the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> a case of beer is like $45. And that's cheap. You know, if you go to Stan Key, it's 60 Right. Yeah, I did the I did the beer index in my uh, book. <laughs> Slow boat <laughs> to the Bahamas. And, yeah, Stan yeah. Key was the peak. Yeah. And I did buy beer there because I was out. Yeah. Um, you, you went across to Bimini, or where'd you cross to? Yeah, cross from Miami over to Bimini. It's pretty easy crossing the Gulf Streams. I always, you know, you hear horror stories about people crossing it, but I don't know. We made really good time. The wind was out of the south, and uh, I mean, heck, we did seven and a half, eight knots all the way across, and uh, just flew over. Oh, but that's where we, we lost the dinghy, unfortunately. You know, as you sail, you learn things, and uh, one thing I learned is it doesn't matter if you're tying off for two minutes or two days tie off the same way because we were backing out of the marina it was four in the morning before the way before the sun was up and i, and I was coming out back on the marina so I, I pulled the dinghy in tight just kind of tied it off halfway and uh <clears throat> you know when i look back an hour and a half later there's no dinghy and uh, we we're fortunate enough to actually somebody found it we had our information written on it somebody found it and they shipped it over back to bimini for us it took us about a week to get it but it was pretty nice so where did it go to it actually drifted through to a mooring field uh, not too far away from the marina where we were. So we had our information listed on it, and they they, they sent me an email and said, "Hey, we had your dinghy." And you know, but I, I I had no idea where we lost it. You know, kept on going, and I, I figured I'd, I'd have to get a new one in Nassau or something. Um, and anyway, so by the time I got to Bimini, I had an email saying, "Hey, we found your dinghy." Um, so then I found a company out of Bimini that does uh, freight delivery, and. I ended up costing me about $250, but that's a lot cheaper to find it. And so that freight company went over, picked it up from the guy on the mooring field, and, and shipped it over to me. Cool. That's great. The motor was obviously not on the Because uh, part of the, on our YouTube channel, we get a lot of negative comments about it, but I really don't have a choice. The dog, we have a, for the dog to go to the bathroom, I have a mat on the, on the bow. And 
so that's where a lot of people store their dinghy. I don't have davits, so, you know, it's just too expensive to put on the boat. And uh, so we just tow our dinghy everywhere, even if, even across. You know, I, I towed it from Georgetown to uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, yeah. And you towed it from Galveston to... Yeah. Uh, I started off with it on the deck, up on the bow. Uh, but after about a day and a half, you know, there just wasn't enough room on the bow for my dogs to go up there safely and, and use the bathroom. Right. And so they were not going to the bathroom, and, and it was making me very anxious and nervous for them, and I felt bad for them. So I just, you know, about a day and a half in, I just uh, tied the dinghy off and threw it over the side. We towed it the rest way across the Gulf of Mexico. I always tie up my dinghy at the bow, but you know, my dog uses floor diapers, so nah. I understand where you're coming from there. I, but I, you know, I think there are a lot, I think most people will say you don't want to drag your dinghy offshore. Yeah. But uh, maybe you're pretty good at it and you tie it down pretty well and you've got, you've got the experience doing that. Uh, yeah, I haven't had any problems with it. I've even been in some pretty rough weather. And uh, I tie, I just, I just tie a, a, a bridle on it, mm-hmm. so it's got points of contact, and then I actually tie a secondary line to another end, end point on it just as a backup. And I've never even been close to having an issue as far as it getting swamped or, or something like that, flipping or anything. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I understand with the 11-foot beam, my boat is 11-foot beam, and with my dinghy up front, there's not really much room to move. Yeah. Definitely not for a big dog. No. I'm interested that you've you've gone to some foreign countries with the dog. You've gone to the Bahamas. Tell me what you needed to do to check into the Bahamas. I've got an idea, but I always like to hear the best practices <laughs> from others. Sure. Well, because <laughs> I usually do it wrong. Yeah. Well, I, you know that's that's what the internet's good for. You can learn all this stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, it was it was a lot of prep getting it done, and it cost me some money doing it, but a lot easier than I thought it'd be. Basically, you know, I took them to the vet, got uh, got all their shots updated. I had to get them. I, I, I don't think you have to get them tighter tested for the Bahamas, but I did it anyway, um, just because maybe there'd be other islands in the future where you have to tighter test the rabies test. Yeah, and, just uh, did that. And so I did all that, got them tested, got them chipped, got all their vaccinations up to date, and then I sent off for permit from the Bahamas ahead of time. I just, they sent me back the, the permit. I just sent a, a self uh Addressed UPS um, package to them for return fee, and they sent it back within a week. And then, so when I went to go check in Bimini, which is really easy, when I went to go check in with the customs there, they took a look at the paperwork, said it was fine, they didn't need to come check the boat or the dogs or anything. It was really easy. If you have all your paperwork done ahead of time, I found it's really easy. Vance, did you have the the vet visit? Oh yeah. Um, your last well, vet visit. Yeah, I didn't forget about that. Yeah. So actually, according to their website and everything, they say do it within 48 hours of taking them there. But so I did it in Miami. I just took them to a vet for the last little checkup. You know, they just give them a once over and then sign off the, the uh, you know, that they're good. But uh, we ended up being delayed a day or two because of waiting for a weather window to cross the Gulf Stream. And so it was more like 72 hours. But they did. I, I think that applies more to airlining than it does cruising boats because they know that you can't always make it over in that a lot of time. Yeah. Hassle on that at all. Yeah, I agree. I think if you're within probably two weeks, you're probably okay. Yeah. I think we had a big discussion of this on the Facebook group that I found at the Bahamas Cruising and Sailing. And I think if you read their language really carefully, it seems to indicate that the 48 hours has to do with a vet in the Bahamas. 
not oh, really? in the U.S. That gave me a lot of headache or a lot of worry uh, when I was going over. As it turned out, I had no problems with the dog whatsoever. And it was a, over a week since uh, we had visited the vet. I had other problems. I brought my daughter's passport instead of mine. Oh, yeah, I remember reading that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that'll mess you up. Yeah, so, so you went to Bimini, spent a few days there. Tell me about your crew. When you left from Galveston, was it just you and the dogs? or No, Megan Binkley, he's actually, she was with me for the first two and a half months. She went home for a month. Uh, she's just a good friend of mine. I've known her well. Right, we, heck, we weren't even good friends. It's more like acquaintances, and I was looking for somebody to come with me. And uh, we've become good friends, obviously. So she was with me for the first two and a half months, and she went home for her sister's having a baby. And then she's actually coming back with me to the boat in about a week. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, and then I, I've had a few friends come on since then while she was gone. But, you know, it is nice having uh, a person that's been on the boat long enough to be familiar with the boat, how to handle the boat, can help with the sailing and everything. And, uh, you know, having friends come on the boat, great, but you can't rely on them. They don't know your boat and they maybe don't know how to sail. And so um, it's nice having somebody that can rely on to help. Yeah, I think it would be a lot harder to have an experienced crew yeah. for day hopping yeah. than it would be for offshore passage making. Because, you know, the, the watch, you just really don't need to know anything. You just need to look around and wake up the captain. But that, yeah, for day hops, it could be more difficult because it's basically your solo sailing. You have to be very careful about giving everybody instructions and being clear about what their roles and are and where they need to stand and all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And going in and out. And after, you know, after having a crew member that's been there long enough, they know, I mean, even though I did most of the sailing, even with her on it, she knew what I was going to be doing and so she could position herself not to be in the way. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. But, after I just did that 800 mile solo from Georgetown to Puerto Rico, and that was you know even just having somebody over stand watch on that would be so much better. Yeah, because uh, it's just it's just exhausting because you never sleep well on that. You know. So how did you do it? How did you? Uh, well, the first three days I would sail between 12 and 18 hours a day because you know the, the, the islands were because I kind of island hop through the Bahamas from Georgetown, so I was able to make a stop every night for the first three days. Okay. Uh, uh, but still, you know, it would only be four or five hours of sleep and then go. But then after that, the long leg was from Mayaguana, which is one of the southernmost Bahamas. And I just, I just bypassed her because their dog rules are a lot more strict than even the Bahamas, from what I've heard. And, you know, I was only going to be there a few days, so I just passed them by and went straight to... I was, I was hoping to go from Mayaguana straight to Puerto Rico, but, you know, the trade winds wouldn't let me do that. Um, straight down to the coast of the Dominican Republic. That was about a 200 mile gap, so, you know, 40 hours. Uh, landed at Luperon and uh, spent just the day there and got some sleep and rest. I never even checked in, so it depends on where you go in Dominican. Sometimes they'll just charge initial fees, and then, some, like I've heard Luperon, they invent all sorts of fees and bribes and all that. I actually had to pay the Dominican Navy a $40 bribe, whatever. That's just what they do. You know, they'll come up and say, hey, how about something for us for helping? Well, you didn't help me, but okay. <laughs> I was I liked the customs and immigration more in the Bahamas than I did in Panama or Ecuador. <laughs> I've never been over there. I want to do that. That's, uh, yeah. I didn't know you went over that way. That's cool. 
you really were moving very fast. So you went a, a big hop. I know people have done that hop in years. <laughs> From when I landed in Puerto Rico to when I left the Bahamas, was, uh, or, or Georgetown anyway, it was nine days. Okay. And uh, it was about 800 miles or so. And it's almost all upwind. Yeah. That's, that's the, you know, I, I, I'm not going to go that way because I plan to kind of do the whole loop, so uh, the Caribbean yeah. loop. But I imagine coming back from the Virgin Islands or anywhere down that, that you know, the, the, the islands down that way, it's got to be so easy because you just go with the wind the whole way. But man, being into those trade winds from Florida all the way east is, uh, you either have to really wait and pick your weather windows or, you know, it's just, it's kind of a beating, you know? Yeah, so did you have a good weather window or not so much? It was decent. The main thing that got, the wind was not well, till, till the last day it got got pretty hairy. By the end, you know, my, my weather information was six days old. So, you know, my, my weather forecast, you know, I was showing it was supposed to be 12 to 15 knots and it ended up being 25 to 30. But uh, the main thing that crossing that Pacific area from Bahamas and the coast of uh, Dominican and then the Mona Pass and the jump from Dominican over to Puerto Rico and that, that's what got me. Got a big wind there and the big waves. Uh, not much fun. Uh, really wasn't. Uh, but uh, it I, it wasn't too bad uh, as far as weather. So, were you able to sail most of the way? Were you tacking? Were you? Did you have to motor a lot? Uh, I, you know, I motor sailed quite a bit. Um, if you haven't read it or, or not familiar with it, it, it saved me immeasurable hassle and time. Um, it's the book uh, *Gentleman's Guide to Passages South* by uh, Von Zant. Yeah, I've heard uh, of it. I've not read it. I haven't not, gone that direction though. If you're going to go that direction, yeah, uh, it's must read. It yeah. really, because what you do going across the coast of Dominican, you know, you have the trade wind that during the daytime, you'll have the accelerated trade winds because the trade winds hit the coastline and they bunch up and just become faster and faster on the Dominican because it's such a, a high coastline. But at night, the, the cool air cools over Dominican and you get an offshore breeze and it kills that, the, the, the trade winds. And so it, you sail at night, go about 7 p.m. till 9 a.m. and you just hug the coast within half a mile of the coast the whole way. You actually have calm seas and you might even have a little bit of an offshore breeze and so you're able to I just motor sail at night most of the time. Cool and you weren't worried about hitting anything right half a mile off? No pretty deep there. Okay. Uh, uh, it gets deep quick down there it's not like the Bahamas you know the Bahamas stay shallow well unless you get on the extrema sound side but you know on the on the other side the, the, the leeward side you know it stays shallow for a while but it's, it's completely different it gets deep quick um, and uh there's a lot less traffic there too. Okay. You're going about a half mile offshore, taking advantage of the what is that? A land breeze or a sea breeze? I don't know. Land breeze. <laughs> land yeah. breeze. Okay. In the book, he refers to it as the night. Okay. Cool. All right. And so you were anchoring every night, every day, or something, or what were yeah, you doing? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I would anchor during the daytime. Most time, get a little bit of rest. You know, I just sail all night there, twelve to you know, just leave at seven p.m. and then be in at an anchorage by nine a.m. Part of the problem with the Dominican is there's very few anchorages in the Dominican, especially on the North Shore. Um, you know, and then anchorages are pretty far apart, and they're not really ideal and pretty rolly. In fact, uh, there's a couple good ones. I mean, Luperon, Puerto La Plata, but I mean, they're really well protected. But other than those, there there's not too many good anchorages there. Right. That, that was part of my problem on the, on the last day is that I planned on uh, I planned on anchoring at, at, at Punta Macau, especially because the weather really picked up and was not good. But I guess just the way the swells were coming, they were coming right into that bay and they were pretty big, and so they were breaking as they entered the bay. 
and so I couldn't get in. And you know, I'd already been sailing all night. Boy, it was 30 miles around the corner to the next anchorage. You know, Puerto Rico was 90 miles, so I just went for it. Went out to deep water, went towards Puerto Rico, and did another. At that, it was another 24 hours from that point. And that that was a little difficult. Yeah, I didn't enjoy that too much. I mean, the first half of that was fine, but about four in the morning that night, I'm actually on deck. You know, I just lay down on deck and kind of get a nap. And, that, and there weren't any clouds or anything coming in. All of a sudden, just a big wind came through. And it got up to 30 knots and a little bit over. And so, uh, you know, pulled in the head sail, reefed the main all the way I could, doing this in the dark and big waves, you know. And, and you know, I'm just exhausted. And so I turned on the motor and, you know, the waves were picking up and all that. And, uh, you know, the next, oh, 10 hours, 8, 10 hours weren't too much fun, but got it done. All right. It seems like everything went fairly well for you. That it yeah. doesn't sound. Does, you've not mentioned anything breaking. You had the dinghy float away, but you know that's the worst thing that happens. Absolutely. There, there's. You know, you're on a boat. Something's going to break all the time. Luckily, knock on wood, it's not been anything structural or anything like that. I mean, I, I lost my inverter on that trip. No big deal. I have a backup, but you know, it's not as good. And I've got some sail repair I need to do. Minor stuff. Nothing. Nothing's. Nothing major has, has broken. It's a boat, you know, I and mean, if stuff breaks all the time. If you haven't had something break on your boat, just wait. You know, it's going to happen. It's a pretty old boat, too, right? Yeah, it is. 30, 1984, so it's, yeah, it's a bit older. What kind of systems do you have on your boat? Um, okay, so I do have wind, wind directions and speed indicator. Wind direction, speed indicator. I do have a radar, and yeah, I have a, a chart plotter. Um, I use my iPads mostly for that. Inverter, I, I replaced all the batteries in it. Um, it doesn't have a generator. I mean, I have a little portable generator if I need to hook it into. Uh, I got a windlass for it. You know, it does have autopilot. You can't do you can't do single handed without an autopilot. You just can't. I mean, you can if you have a windlass. I mean, not uh, a wind vane. But what kind of autopilot do you have? It's a Simrad. Um, it doesn't. It won't like it won't slam to the GPS or anything like that. But it'll just hold a heading. My main gripe about the autopilot has been that when. Uh, Anytime the wind changes a little bit, you know, sometimes the autopilot kind of gets confused for a while until it corrects its course. Oh, okay, yeah. The autopilot off-course alarm haunts me to this day. I, I, I think I hear it all the time. You know, I, I, especially, you know, I'll wake up dreaming about it. Was that a dream or was that real? You know, I don't know. Right. It's your PTSD from your solo right. passage. Right. Yeah. Is that like a, a hydraulic ram or electrical ram? It's a hydraulic ram. Okay. So that really does use a lot of uh, power. You know, I, I can watch my battery monitor. And, you know, when it's not actively moving the RAM, it doesn't use much power. But it's moving the RAM about, you know, every, you know, so it's a little bit. But, I mean, it, it, it pulls about five amps when it's moving the RAM. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's not too bad. Five amps per hour. Yeah. I don't know. I think maybe my autopilot was doing 10 or something. I really had to, I really had to charge the batteries on our 27 day passage i had a lot of fuel just to charge the batteries yeah i mean when you're actively steering i think that's okay i'm i'm shopping for a new one right now i'm probably going to replace my old one which i had two of them burn out so the the wheel pilot motors two burned out on the passage uh people have said really bad things about that but I went a long ways before I burned them out, and I really was, it was really challenging steering. Steering dead downwind, yeah. if you do that by hand, it's pretty hard. It and if the autopilot's doing it, it's 
really working. Uh-huh. I don't expect to be doing that for four weeks straight again. Well, I guess are the are the wheel ones like that? Are they less expensive than like a Ram or something like that? They gotta be, I would think. Not really. Oh, really? Not that much. I could I could get a Ram. The problem is I don't think it would work very well on my boat. The guy that installed it on my model, I have an Island Packet 31. Yeah. He drilled a hole in his rudder shaft to do it. Wow. And I don't know if I want to do that. Right. My wife told me don't do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's her boat, so. Go on that shaft. Weakening the shaft when you do that. That's yeah, it's kind of scary. Yeah. So I don't. Where does the where does the ram attach? Do you know? It. So the way uh, it, there's like a, I don't know, like a flywheel underneath that it is attached to the rudder. I honestly don't know how that is attached to the rudder shaft. Yeah. Uh, I'd have to look to see how that is attached. It was already done when I bought the boat. Cool. And then it just moves that flywheel. Uh, something to think about. So that's the end of the interview with. Bobby White of Sailing Doodles. Super nice guy. You should check out his channel. Like me, he got a new expensive camera drone. uh, And thankfully, unlike me, he recently crashed it. And that crash, along with a crash by another YouTube friend of mine at Crack and Kiss Sailing Adventures, they... uh, their crash has really made me think about what are the best practices for launching a drone off a sailboat. And so I've got a video about the top five epic drone crashes, and one of them features uh, sailing doodles, but they're all very interesting. And if you're thinking of taking pictures of your boat while sailing, you definitely will want to check out that video. Uh, we have our Shellbacks to Polywogs, episode 13, where me, Sophie, and Jana cross the equator and continue our upwind voyage to Ecuador. You should check that out, and we'll be coming out on June the 1st with the final episode of the season on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel, episode 14. I posted our boat show seminar video from the Houston International Boat Show, my talk of how to sail around the world part-time. You can get that exclusively on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. We just had a new patron make a first mate level pledge. I want to say thank you to David McGrain and all the other patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing podcast and YouTube channel. Without them, this podcast would not continue. And the camera expenses and the hosting expenses alone for the podcast and YouTube channel far have exceeded any pledges that we have collected. And to bring you the YouTube videos and the podcast means that I must incur internet charges in foreign countries, which is not just complicated, but it is also expensive. French Polynesia has some of the most expensive data rates in the world. I did a post on Facebook comparing the data rates that I experienced in the Bahamas, Panama, Ecuador, 
and French Polynesia for cellular data and French Polynesia has the most expensive cellular data by far. Without ongoing listener support of this podcast, it will not continue. So pledge generously on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Goodbye for now. I hope to bring you an update of our travels in the Marquesas in the next episode. Until next time, have some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.